Welcome to The Breakdown with Brock Corbin-Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Broadcorp. And I'm Becky Chair. And once again, today marks the last, for now, guest hosting stint with Jeff Cole. In today's episode, we are once again going to dedicate the entirety of our episode to a conversation with our guest. This week, our guest is Scott Jensen, who was the Republican-endorsed candidate for governor in 2022. Scott will talk about his reasons his campaign for governor came up short, his thoughts on the Republican Party of Minnesota's endorsement process, how abortion influenced the race for governor, and his thoughts about involving more Minnesotans into determining our state's abortion policy. Finally, we'll end this show with our typical tweets of the week and the food fight with Brock Rebecca and, of course, Jeff Cole. This week, we are maybe in for a real pickle as we discuss top sandwiches. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the show. Well, we're excited this week to be joined by Dr. Scott Jensen. Um, I think it's fair to say that since we started this podcast, the person who's been most requested for us to have on is you. Um, and for a number of reasons, it's been a discussion point. And we um, took the opportunity after you submitted this op-ed to the Star Tribune about abortion to reach out to you. And you were incredibly gracious and accommodating to come in and to conduct this interview. So we're very excited to talk with you today. And I hope it's a well-rounded conversation. Uh, everyone gets an opportunity to speak. And let's let's talk a bit. Uh, Becky, you want to dive in from there? So uh, just, Dr. Jensen, I want to thank you for being here today. Thank you. And if you don't mind, can we just go with Scott? That's right. We'll go with Scott. Thank you. Well, hello, Scott. Welcome. Um, so I guess maybe since we're uh, we just jumping on into the op-ed here. Let's just jump right in. All right. Um, so I think we'll we'll chat on the op-ed and, and see where, where things go here. Um, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I could, you know, one of the things I wanted to point out before we begin is and and this is a little bit of a precursor, I think, to discussing uh, the the op-ed, if I may. But I wanted just to be candid. You know, Becky and I and Jeff spoke a lot during the election cycle about your candidacy, your campaign. And one of the things I didn't meet you till to now, till today. Um, and one of the things I heard a lot about your time in the Senate is your thoughtfulness, your willingness to have conversations, your willingness to be uh, engaged on to take a side on difficult issues. And I'm and one of the things that at least I'm looking forward to learning in this conversation is more about that. And in particular, um, how the race for governor and particularly on the Republican side, are we as welcoming as we can be to candidates or do we steer them into a corral and some stuff? And on this abortion thing is, I think is a great discussion way to, to start that. So I just wanted to kind of start off by that. I appreciate those comments. Thank you very much, Michael. So a lot of things, you know, I, I've, Gone through the um, endorsement process with a number of candidates. I I see the the positives to it. I also have some criticisms of it. Um, one thing that uh, has come up a lot in conversations about the endorsement process is the fact that it kind of I won't say forces, but a lot of times candidates are you know you you're running to the right and then you moderate a little bit to the primary and moderate a little bit to the general or or at least the messaging. Um, you know, abortion is one I think you know, a topic that definitely has a, a kind of pendulum swing of how you navigate through that topic. Um, can you walk us through maybe a little bit about your stance on abortion or, or how that kind of came through starting at the endorsement and through now to your your op-ed that you wrote, you know, a couple of weeks ago or a month ago? Well, thank you, Becky. And I think you're spot on right. I think our endorsement process is broken. I guess to begin at the beginning, I'd have to go back to 1986 when K.J. McDonald convinced me to help Cal Ludeman run for governor. 
And I remember that was my first foray, if you will, into a statewide race in Minnesota. And I remember Cal was just a, a very credible and honest candidate from Tracy. And he had a person who uh, oftentimes would go out and campaign with him. And I remember he was a minister and he was an extremely powerful speaker. But what I remember most about that campaign was my frustration at the end that it seemed like abortion was literally a litmus test over and over and over again in 1986. And I wrote an op-ed in 1987, I think, saying, do we really need to have abortion be a litmus test for every race? And I think the example I used was, if you have the world's best dog catcher, but you don't happen to agree with that person on their position on abortion, could you still support him as a dog catcher if he's humane and able to return a pet to the owner without any undue force or violence. And so it was so ironic that 35 years later, here I am running for governor, something I had never really anticipated doing. And as odd as it seems, I think on February 1st, 2022, in the midst of terrific news where the precinct caucuses went our way, we had a really good night. I think that did tweak the direction that we were going somewhat. And I think it ended up being problematic for us. At that point in time, we realized that we did have a chance at getting the endorsement. Prior to that, we thought we were a long shot to get the endorsement. And we thought that it might well end up being a primary. And yet we didn't want to do that because all the candidates were saying, well, we'll abide. So from February 1st, probably to the Rochester Endorsing Convention, it was fairly straightforward to continue to check the box and speak the Republican rhetoric on abortion, which would say that, yeah, we'll do whatever we can to reduce abortions. And frankly, there were ill-advised remarks I made, and those are on me. It wasn't my team. It was it was me. I I think you get in the moment and you're speaking and you always had the backstop of Roe v. Wade. I mean, Roe v. Wade took place in 1973, the year I graduated from high school. So I'd never really been an adult without Roe v. Wade being the law of the land. And so you could pretty much say what you needed to say, whether you were on the Republican or Democratic side of the aisle. And everybody sort of knew that Roe v. Wade was the backstop. Well, obviously in 2022, that changed. At that point in time, I remember when the Roe v. Wade decision came out, my wife said, Scott, this is going to be a problem. And I said, yeah, you're right, but it may over time become just one of the issues. And uh, Mary's no political pundit by any means, but she said, I don't know, Scott. And sure enough, she was right. July did nothing but just heat up that issue. So I wanted to come out and say, listen, we're not running to ban abortion or to change the abortion laws. We're running to deal with inflation and crime and education. But frankly, I had uttered words that made it pretty easy to paint me into a corner. And you're absolutely right, Becky. I think that because I was being accused of having been employed by Planned Parenthood, I almost had to try to run to the right of some of the other candidates in the Republican Party that uh, were opponents of mine in that process for endorsement. So 
the bottom line is, I think that I'll probably take to my grave the realization that when I began my candidacy to be governor of Minnesota, I did so without really doing perhaps the soul searching I could have done in terms of where I was going to land on the issue of abortion, because I am personally pro-life. And yet I'm cognizant of the fact that bodily autonomy is, for many people, directly connected to the notion of having pro-choice. And I'd been a big advocate for being able to say no thank you to a COVID vaccine because I wanted bodily autonomy. And yet that sharp, seemingly apparent hypocrisy of saying, you don't get to have bodily autonomy, but I do. It was a a challenge and uh, it was uncomfortable for me. And so I think that this election cycle, and it was not just our race, it was across the land. I think the Roe v. Wade had a profound impact on so many elections. But in Minnesota, there's no question I had provided the uh, the fuel for the Democrats to do what they did. And I think they effectively used their money and painted me into a corner to the point where I could get over to my children's place to babysit grandchildren. And my grandchildren would say, Grandpa, how come you were angry on TV tonight? And I'd smile and I'd say, well, I, I'm not angry. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. I have a quick follow-up on that. Um, one of the lines from your op-ed, I, and I, I will say this, um, of this podcast, I really appreciate that we're able to have conversations with people we disagree with. I will start this by saying I am personally pro-choice. Um, and so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you balance that um, kind of differing of opinions. And and I'll quote part of your op-ed that you wrote. Um, and again, this is our Star Tribune op-ed. We'll, we'll po- put it out um, from our podcast Twitter account as well. You start a paragraph by saying, I am pro-life, but I won't tell you what determines the beginning of life because I don't know. You go on to say, my thoughts on abortion are increasingly influenced by my passionate embrace of the importance of bodily autonomy for all, meaning I get to choose what my body endures. So how could you go a little bit more into that balancing act? Because that to me, that sentence of the bodily autonomy for all, I get to choose what my body endures, reads bro choice to me. You know, and, and I know, know you're saying that's not your personal thoughts and you are recognizing the kind of uh, inconsistency or what it may be in in that fact but I'm curious of of just if you could explain a little bit more of how that how that sits with you or for you when i say i'm personally pro life i'm talking about my personal life so my married life with my wife mary in terms of what kind of decision making we have made we've had six pregnancies three of them were miscarriages three of them uh, were successful in providing a wonderful uh, new creation. But um, I think that what we can do now is we can, and I'm, and that's where I'm at, we can be both pro-life and pro-choice. We can be pro-life from a personal perspective, and we can be pro-choice from a policy perspective. And if we can get there, then I think we can go the next step and recognize that everybody wants bodily autonomy. And yet I also think that there are very few people that see the need for an abortion as something that's something we would want to move toward. I mean, it is a procedure that has complications of hemorrhage and perforation and subsequent infertility. So if we could maybe hearken back a little bit to the words of Bill Clinton in the 1990s, safe, legal, and rare, let's try to make it a less necessary consideration. Recently, the O-pill is just approved for F, uh, by the FDA for over-the-counter. 
we still have a problem there. We cannot allow it to be out there on the market without it being affordable. So I think that, frankly, that is one medication that, in the same way that perhaps an EpiPen, I think it needs to be subsidized by all of society so that women who have the challenge and blessing and opportunity to carry children do not have to be painted into a corner regarding their decision-making based on financial capabilities to meet that. So I think we need to absolutely provide availability, affordability in regards to over-the-counter birth control pills like most nations do in the first world. I think we should have barrier contraceptives more available. We should have the morning-after pill in every medicine cabinet next to the Tylenol bottle. We should streamline adoption. We should start teaching natural family planning in the junior and senior years in high school so both men and women understand the cycling of the human body and how it is that we, if you will, have a sperm and an egg come together and when it happens and things like that. You mentioned, Becky, that in my op-ed, I said three key words. I said, I don't know. I think when I was younger, I think I used to think that, of course, life began at conception. I don't think that anymore. I don't know. I think that we now can create an embryo that, if given the chance, will grow to a full human being, and we don't need testicles, ovaries, sperm, or eggs. We can do it by driving a stem cell back into a primordial germ cell state. We can then have those cells divide in, into haploid, uh, basically artificial sperm and an egg, and they can come together. So we can do all this in the lab. And I know that's uncomfortable for people, but it is what it is. And it's maybe uncomfortable for people right up until the time their child or their grandchild needs a liver and there's no match available or needs a bone marrow transplant and there's no match available. We have had uncomfortable ethical challenges over the last at least half century that have been very uncomfortable in terms of transplantation and what we can do in the lab. We're going to have to accept the fact that there's going to be a difficult congruence and intersection between the ethics and the technology of what we have. But I think when you can literally create a life without eggs, ovaries, sperm, or uh, testicles, I think that we're at a place where I, as a physician and a scientist, I can no longer say that I know when life begins. Jeff. So this is a look, this experience so far has been very interesting for me because I, I had about 30 questions before we started. And I think my list of questions has evolved quite a bit as you've continued to speak. As Michael kind of alluded to, we've spent a lot of time talking about you in the past. We've talked about you when, when you were running for governor. We talked about you before this show so that we kind of had uh, an idea how we were going to um, approach the interview and what questions we wanted to ask and those things. And one of the things that Michael had brought up in the past, and you can speak to it if you'd like to, but um, I think one of my personal frustrations is that the Scott Jensen that was in the Senate and was a senator is not the Scott Jensen that I saw running for governor. That's the, one of my personal frustrations too. It, and the Scott Jensen that that's sitting at the table here right now is a much more thoughtful person who were having a very, I think, constructive and very useful conversation with. And that's not, that's not what we saw during the campaign. And so I, I'd, you know, I'd like to get a little bit into, so, so why is that? What, 
what because because you alluded to what you said, but what you said was we're absolutely going to ban abortion if I'm elected governor. I don't that may not be the direct quote, right? But I mean that was that was essentially that that was it. And so it wasn't it there was not there was no wiggle room in that statement whatsoever. And then clearly as you said when the backstop la- was gone, that's what we were left with on Scott Jensen's position on the on a, a very important topic and then we went into a campaign where then your first commercial had to be no, I'm not going to go ban abortions when I'm when I'm governor. And so um wh- how did we get there? I remember when Ben Carson ran for president and someone had pointed out to him that he had some momentum going and then it had dipped and then he once again started to get some momentum and he said, I think I I lost my weight. I, I think I felt, and this is Ben Carson, I'm just paraphrasing, but I was maybe a little overmanaged, not necessarily by a team, but perhaps by my own drives, my own competitive urges. I think that one of the most appreciated articles about me after I left the Senate and before I had decided to run for governor was, I think it was written by Peter Callaghan from Minnesota Post. And he spoke of the fact that I was a bit of a maverick and I, I was thoughtful and I was unpredictable. And I was proud of that. I, I put my name on the marijuana bill. I think it was Ann Rest and uh, Senator Franson. And I told them, they came to me and it was a big long bill. And I read it over the weekend and I, I went back to them and I said, this is a sloppy bill. The definitions are wrong. There's so much work it needs, but it has expungement and decriminalization in it, which I'm really advocating for. And I remember, I think it was, T.J. Ryback had written an article in the Minneapolis Tribune at one time talking about when he was a kid, if he got caught with a joint or two in his pocket, as a white guy, he would get off 80% likelihood. But if he'd been black, the likelihood of him getting off would be only 20%, something like that. And I thought that was just an, an egregious injustice and we should change it. I wasn't on board with recreational marijuana because I've got concerns about motor vehicle uh, operations and things like that. And I know how difficult it was for us to get to a point where we feel like we have the ability to assess whether or not under the influence of alcohol, someone can operate a vehicle safely. But I remember I also, (laughs) I remember signing on to be the chief author of an ERA bill in the Senate, the Equal Rights Amendment. And I remember getting tagged by the MCCL group saying, you can't do that. And I said, well, shoot a mile. It's just equal rights for women. I mean, we're who doesn't believe in that? And they said, well, that might be used by the pro-choice people as support for their abortion position. And I said, well, I'm not interested in having a fight with you. And so we added some words to, to fix that, but it never went anywhere anyway. I had a good share of my bills that I never got a hearing on. I remember, uh, I think one of the worst things the Democrats did this past session was make it more difficult for third parties. And I, I understand why they did it but I just don't like that one. I think the Democrats got some really important things done this past session, including allowing felons that are out of incarceration to be able to participate fully in the political process. I think that's important, and I don't know why you wouldn't want to have that happen. But I think that uh, when I was in the Senate, I I think I was a little bit more free and easy in terms of being 
open to discussion. And I think that intense competition, and I think also, in fairness to me, none of the other candidates vying for the Republican endorsement were being attacked as frequently as I do. And I understand I was the front runner after the precinct caucus, but they had the seven sins of Scott Jensen. They had the grid that would go out and, and every candidate uh, at every debate, there was always the point in the debate where they're going to take the shots on me. So I don't mind debating at all, but I knew that it was going to happen. And I, I remember I said to myself, I'm not going to do that. And I remember there was one debate where Mike Murphy, I think made an unfair comment about the rise of the budget under Paul Gazelka's leadership in the Senate. And I remember taking some of my time in my response saying that wasn't fair because that wasn't Paul Gazelka's doing. And I just felt like at some point in time, you have to stop the rhetoric, but I, I didn't do enough. And I, I think that that carrot is just so darn tantalizing. And it was almost like February 1st was in the garden of Eden. You got a bite of the apple. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's probably the biggest mistake we made is that we stopped being that candid maverick. And, you know, that's that's on me. Nobody else. Your position on abortion reminds me very much like Tom Rich. So Tom Rich was the governor of Pennsylvania. He was rumored to be a running a potential running mate for George W. Bush in 2000 and in 2000, excuse me. When uh, we've since learned prior to the show that you were in high school at that time. Um, but Tom Ridge is unique in the sense that he is a Republican statewide elected office holder in the state of Pennsylvania. And he understood the, understood the party position. And there was this conflict that existed that where he was, you know, where he knew he was what his position was. And it was discussed a lot. There are a number of articles about um, the potential of Ridge being selected to be George Bush's running mate. And it was kind of positioned as kind of the, the Tom Ridge conundrum, but that where Ridge wanted to go was that he wanted the party to be more inviting and open to people like him who were conflicted on the issue. Do you see the, the similarities? And I don't know if you're familiar with, with Tom Ridge's career. When George Bush was elected, then he became the first secretary of Homeland Security uh, and played a very prominent role in, in the Bush administration. But the knock on him was always his position on abortion. That was that was kind of his ceiling, and and in retrospect, was is that not in retrospect, but moving forward, it seems that your op-ed wants to kind of go away with that and and have that kind of honest discussion that Tom Ridge wanted to have in two thousand. Absolutely, and however pertinent it was in two thousand, it's it's ten times as important now. I mean, right now in Minnesota, we're dangerously close to having such one-party domination that some of the things that have come out of the Democratic Party have been astonishing. I think many people have concerns about how much money are we spending? How fast did our budget go from $40 billion to $72 billion? What are we doing with our children? Are we indeed potentially exposing them to choices and hypersexualization that they don't need to be exposed to until later on in life? There's a lot of things that we can have legitimate discussions, but right now the Republicans are on the verge of being irrelevant. And I think that Tom Ridge is, is absolutely correct. I think that I'm no constitutional lawyer or anything like that, but my dad was in politics and dad was a judge 
at the end of his life in a, in the state tax court. And I always thought that you can never have a, a democratic republic work if the minority tells the majority what to do. It has to be that the majority rules. And I think that's pretty darn clear in Minnesota that two-thirds or more believe that some access to abortion should be present. To me, that has to be the law then. I think that there's also greater than 50% of people think that elective third trimester abortions should perhaps be off limits unless there's problems with rape, incest, or the health of the mother. Uh, or perhaps we have to add uh, the uh, fetus is incompatible with life because of whatever the situation is. We have to have these conversations because right now this issue is preventing us from having discussions about things like freedom and freedom of speech and how much taxation do we want to do and how big should government be and is it okay to lock down businesses arbitrarily and did we do okay by locking kids out of school and did we have a problem with the pandemic in terms of labeling people as conspiracy theorists perhaps a little too casually if they thought that there was gain-of-function research, which I think now has been relatively established, those people were labeled. I think the Republican Party has got to either change its name or change its ways. Perhaps we need to be called constitutionalists and try to lean into that. But I think Samuel Alito, the Supreme Court Justice, saying that the Constitution has been put through a stress test like never before, I don't think he's wrong. So from my perspective, I want to see the kind of conversation take place that we're having right here. And the only way you're going to have it is if you need to have some sacrificial lambs in order for that to go forward. And it needs to be me. That's fine. But I'm first and foremost a family doctor. I've never seen myself as a politician, but I'm, I'm going to be candid. I think that during the campaign, I probably, probably tried to play to the, the various instructions that seemed to come forth. I remember thinking, we need to talk about abortion in July, August, September, and October, but that was hands off. We were told over and over again, one word, ICE, inflation, crime, education. Don't talk about anything else. Deflect everything to those three things. And I just don't think that's working. But to, to Jeff's point, your position on abortion, and, and the, just maybe this question to the three of us, his position on abortion, thoughtful, reasonable, and electable. What, what type of dynamic doesn't allow that type of thoughtfulness to enter a campaign. And I'm not blaming you, but was it a staff dynamic? I mean, what was preventing, because I got, I got, I also have to agree with Jeff in the sense that we had a lot of questions coming in and where this conversation is going is there's a much more level of candor on your part um, that I think is refreshing, enlightening and presents, I think, as, as Jeff pointed out, you know, a little bit of where was this Scott Jensen during the campaign? Because I think that this message would have resonated with a lot of Minnesotans. I can't disagree with you, Michael. I think that for me, I, I think a big part of where this comes from is I think we have an activist group that plays at the five yard line on two issues in the Republican Party and it's guns and abortion. Does it give, does it give candidates like you enough space to maneuver? No. Okay. And I think if you remember, I had a tremendous amount of uphill pushing of the snowball on guns because I'd put my name on two bills and I, I removed my name from one of the bills, but the two bills I'd signed on to 
One was to toughen up the straw man purchases. And I don't know why that was problematic. I mean, if you're buying a gun for someone who shouldn't have one and potentially making a profit on it, that's bullshit. And I think the other one was, you know, the, the universal background check. And I'm not a wizard on, on guns and all that. I had a lot of conversations. I mean, shoot a mile, I had a lot of death threats. I think 50,000 people reached out to me in one weekend. And if I'd been in high school, I think I would have been nominated homecoming king. But the bottom line was, uh, I had to backtrack on that. And honestly, I think we should have been having a conversation about how can we do stand your ground and can we put in some castle doctrine so that we can truly feel comfortable defending our home, taking care of business and our loved ones. But yeah, we could talk about are there are there gaps in our background check system that should be fixed, but that was taboo. And so I had to back off of that. I had to basically say mea culpa, mea culpa, and I did. And I think those two issues, we, we've got to be a different party than just those two issues. I understand that those two issues are important, and I own numerous guns, and I consider myself a, a strong Second Amendment supporter, but we've got to stop not having these conversations. In 2017 to 2020, if there was one party that was more responsible than the other for gridlock, it was the Republicans. We had control of the Senate the entire four years, and we had control of the House in 17 and 18. We could have driven the conversation, and we did not. We had this fear that if the conversation took place, that might make it more real. So I I I, I want to put a pin in the guns thing. I, I think that maybe, maybe we'll come back to that. But I want to go back to your conversation about basically saying— or comment um, that in you know June, July, August, September, you were told we're not we're not touching a budget. not June, July, or, or July, right? Um, so you know, I, I I previously I worked for Tom Emmer, I worked for Jason Lewis, I worked for Mike McFadden. You're the candidate, right? So it was sorry, I banged the table there. Was there polling? Was what was this? What was the reasoning you were getting that those were off limits, or that clarifying your stance on this was off limits? Because I can tell you, as as working for those three gentlemen they would put their foot down. And now they said things on the campaign trail. I think that at times staff probably wishes they could rein back in. But you're the candidate. So couldn't you have gone out and say, I'm the one that's trying to get this election certificate. I'm the one that is the 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 name on this campaign. I'm the one. I am the candidate. This is where I stand and I'm going to go out even if it's the death of us. Absolutely. I could have done that. Was was there polling telling you? I mean, did you guys poll on on abortion to get message? Do any message testing on that? We did a variety of polls, and I think I probably had a chance to look at a dozen different polls. Some of them we paid for, some of them we did not. I can't tell you which poll showed what, but I can tell you that there were many influences, and I would, yeah, I would just say that there were many influences that said. That's not going to be a winning issue, regardless of how much open conversation you have. With the words I'd already uttered, anything I said, I'd be considered a flip-flopper. And it would just be looking like I was trying to be politically expedient or something like that. So I think we just said, okay, well, let's focus on what's happening in Minnesota and, and things like that. I mean, and, I, and I, to your point, I do get endorse, or abortion and guns at the endorsement. It is, I mean, if you are weak on either one of those, there goes the endorsement. And so in a week, I don't know if we're going to have time today to get into the the bulk of 
should we do away with the endorsement I, process or not? But can we can we can we go there for just a minute? Because I think I, we should. I, I'm, I'm a happy to. I'm a I'm a firm eliminate the endorsement process. It does more harm than good. It's exclusionary. There's there's a million reasons wrong with it. I've been very vocal about that for a long time now. Jeff, um, can I push back on that? Yeah, I'm going to guess it. At the end of the day, at the end of the issue, you and I have way more agreement than disagreement on it, but you said do away with the endorsement process. I don't think there's any problem with having an endorsement process. I think what we need to do is have primaries. I mean, I think if the people who are the grassroots workers in the party come together and endorse this candidate, I mean, that's what happened with Erin Murphy. She got the endorsement, but Tim Walls won the primary. I think the Democrats have demonstrated that they're not going to have 2,000 people make the decision as to who's going to be on the ballot in November. They're going to have, I think in 2018, I think it was, they had 700,000 Democrat voters in the primary and the Republicans, I believe, had 350,000, approximately two to one. So I think that we just need to say, listen, we're not going to give a dollar to a candidate that doesn't pledge to go to the primary. At that point in time, we can have our endorsement. We can work for the endorsement. But it won't be so all-consuming. I think it would have made me a better candidate. And I'm not trying to make an excuse. The flaws that I had as a candidate were substantial and they were on me. But I think that I will never run again. I may never run again anyway because I'm not, you know, I'm old. But if I did run for something, I would never run again without going to the primary. Do we need also then? I mean, I, 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 so get, that's a, that's a position I can get behind. I, I don't mind. So, uh, but I we had, need a June primary. R- correct. We, and we, Ken we, Martin and David Hand both said that they thought we should have a June primary as well until after that selection. And I've been disappointed that David Hand hasn't been beating that drum more. And I've been disappointed that Ken Martin hasn't. I think the two of them should come together and say, hey, we talked about this before. Let's do it. I really think that's what we need to do. A June primary, go to the go to the primary. Let's let a million Minnesota voters in the primary make a decision. Right. And and that's and I think that's a solution I could live with. Um I I, I had the opportunity to live in a state other than Minnesota and see how politics work in other states. It was it was very interesting to me. Um I lived in Arizona for a few years. We there was a a motion made at a meeting that there would be an endorsement by, they don't have the same exact, they have basically an analogous thing to delegates, but they're called different things and whatever, but that, that they would actually endorse a candidate. And it was such a huge deal and such a huge departure from how the process worked in Arizona, that it was like the people who suggested that we're almost strung up for even suggesting why would this little group of people get to pick the candidate for everybody else right and then you come then i'm back in minnesota and it's like well why would we let people decide who our candidate is we are the we are the all-knowing delegates we are the we are the cream of the crop and i think anybody who wants to be entirely honest who's talked to delegates knows that that's not true and that they are not not only are they not the cream of the crop because they are not better informed than your average person and they're not but they but they're not representative because by definition if you go through this process and i've done it i've been a delegate and i've been a state central delegate and i've done all those crazy things but 
I'm not normal. I'm sitting here on a, you know, on a Sunday night talking politics with you guys. I, I'm, I'm not a normal person. I'm not representative. Who is representative is the people who decide to show up and go to a primary. And we, and I think the Democrats have, we've seen it twice in recent history where there was an endorsed candidate that then lost the primary. And I think, so I guess if we want to keep endorsed, I would like to strip all of the power away from those 2000 goofballs. Um, but if we want to go, I got to push, push back against that, Jeff. Those are not 2000 goofballs. Some of those are extremely committed people that are out there doing the door knocking, doing the parades, helping make this happen, doing the donating. It's simply that they're not necessarily representative of the larger body. And I think that's what you're getting at. I mean, I, I hear you. I hear some resentment and I appreciate that. And I could have some rap, some resentment too, because I could say, wow, they pushed me into a corner. I would have been a better November candidate if this and that, but it's just on me. I think going forward, we can do this better. To me, the heartbreaking thing was the number of new people that had never participated before 2022, and they wanted to be a delegate. And they found themselves shut out of the process, either because they didn't know the right people, they didn't understand the process, or there were backroom shenanigans going on that made it impossible for them to get to Rochester and have a vote. Yeah. And I think when we do that as a party, we are literally shooting ourselves in the foot. And that's why I think the whole thing needs to go away because it's been like that forever. It's always been that way. We, we, you know, if you go back, um, I don't remember what year it is cause I lose track of years, but the Ron Paul candidates came in, right. And had this whole thing and they tried to, and they actually had a little bit more success because they were very organized about how the, they were really into rules and how you use the rules to challenge people and how you, you know, and how you use subsection 3.6 to say, okay, then you do this and get people in there. Um, but at the end of the day, it didn't make a difference because. Let me, let me go on the attack here. Michael, you were arguably from 2010 to 2012 or 14, whatever the dates were, one of the most influential conservative voices in Minnesota. Why didn't you do something then about this? Because I know from some of the comments you've made, that you've struggled with that process that we go through. And it seems to me that, as Jeff said, you said forever. Well, it's not forever, but it's certainly a long time. And we did have a chance, I think, in 2010 and 2012. And I hope we have a chance now. But I'd love to hear your thoughts, Michael. Did you ever feel like you had the chance to pull the trigger, no pun intended, and just get something done so that we could be a stronger party? The endorsement process is what the activists want to believe. And the, the problem we have is a couple of things. Um, I worked on Bosch's was race in 96. That was the last time there was a no endorsement at a state convention. I worked on Bosch's race. They changed the rules after that. Um, Bosch's was not abiding by the endorsement. And there was a big push in 96 by the Mackesee people to have there be uh, an endorsement pledge. And so there was a push in, 90, in, in 96, 98, 2000, uh, I had a, a number of roles of the party. I ended as deputy chair, and the endorsement process was significant. Um, the problem with the endorsement process is not that it exists. It's just I think that the activists do not understand that the process doesn't reward or put candidates in a position to win. And that's the reality. You can have an endorsement process, but the truth is, and I've said this consistently, um, 
Republicans are the party of personal responsibility until it comes to winning elections. Uh, and to be honest with you, Scott, this you might be the first time that I've heard someone actually accept some accountability and responsibility for an election process. And I think it's refreshing and it's honest. And I want to applaud you for that, for having that level of candor. But the endorsement process, there is a belief, and, and Jeff and I have had these conversations, and, and I think it was most prevalent with Jeff Johnson's campaign. Uh, Jeff Johnson's campaign was, was of the opinion that getting the endorsement, that there was this m magical truck that was going to show up to the state convention with boatloads of money, and, and all this process would happen, and it didn't. And I think where the, the endorsement process went really went south was between Johnson and Pawlenty. I mean, to think that Tim Pawlenty wasn't a more electable candidate in 2018, I think the activists absolutely went off the deep end. And the process, but the problem is, is that we have candidates buying into the process and you, and you have party activists and party leadership who can't change the process. I mean, uh, what you're describing, getting rid of the endorsement process. And, and, and one thing I would say, the Democrats uh, are by definition, a coalition party in the state. They have long been, they are a form, uh, they're a joining of the farmer labor and the democratic party. Uh, so they have, they are much more of a coalitions based party. So where they have much more of that history of divisiveness and, and, and bucking the endorsement process. Um, the endorsement process isn't uh, the endorsement process to the Democrats is one step in the process, but not the process. And Republicans, I think, have given too much influence on that. And I accept responsibility for the 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 work that I did when I was party in, in having the endorsement process matter. Um, but the truth is, is that I think we've hit the point where I think all sides agree. What, what ha we haven't had yet is we haven't have candidates come out and say the endorsement process is broken, that the endorsement process doesn't work. And, and I would encourage you to the degree which you feel comfortable, aside from this, this, big, this big burden you've taken on related to abortion, I think it would be meaningful and significant. I don't think anyone ever questioned that you wanted the endorsement, that you, that you believed that getting the vote of the activist mattered. But having gone through the process and come out the other side, I think it's fair to say that the process didn't reward your thoughtfulness. It didn't, re it didn't, the, the, the party process rewards black and white. Yeah, I'm pro-life, I'm, I'm pro-Second Amendment. It doesn't allow for nuance. And the reality is, is that the vast majority of the state, per Jeff's position about whether we're normal, none of us are normal here, because we're sitting here on a Sunday night, but the vast majority of Minnesotans have nuanced positions on these things. And we're having candidates go through a gauntlet where they have to vote a particular way. And the last candidate to stand up at a convention and say, I want your endorsement, but I'm not going to abide by it is Mike McFadden. Uh, and that was in 2014. I don't know that a candidate can stand up and say, I want your endorsement, but I'm not abiding by it. I think the last time it happened and they actually got elected, the governor was Arnie Carlson in his second term in 1994. I think Alan Quist got the endorsement. On the and, first ballot. Uh, I was then, there that night. Yeah, in the primary. Uh, Arnie won that and then he won, he won the race. I'll go so far as to say this. I don't think that it would be a less than a 1% likelihood that whoever runs for governor in 2026 in Minnesota on the Republican side, if they're not willing to go to the primary, they won't have my support. And I have had some meetings with uh, donors who have much more capability for generosity than I, who have also said that they're at a point right now where they're willing to say, we're not going to write you a check until you file. Are you ruling out running in 2026? I'm not ruling out anything. I'm old. I could be dead tomorrow. If I'm in good health two or three years from now, and I thought that I had perhaps the best chance to win, I would think about it. But I've, I've got to believe that 
the Republican conservative movement has got to look at how can we get a really good, thoughtful candidate that can create a movement, do the fundraising, do some of the things we did, but potentially maybe be something other than a white male. So, but today's, but sitting here today, you're not ruling out running in for, for governor in 2026. No, I'm not ruling it out. Okay. Well, I pre that's, you know, that's news right there for sure. Yeah. I have a whole lot more, I think we could say about the endorsement process. Um, but I do want to kind of, if, if everyone's comfortable. Oh, come on. Come on. Pile on. Pile on. Pile on. Well, I, I think you get to say what us. you want to say. Well, back. first I'll say. First, You've been very quiet. You go ahead. <laughs> first, I will go by saying I was, a, I came up as an activist. I was a BPOU chair, deputy chair, you know, all of the things. In 2012, I was chair of my BPOU and I was not elected as a delegate because the Ron Paul people did such a good job. And I will say, you know, I, that was also when I was, you know, in my mid 20s and single now as a mother, you know, wife, having more obligations, going to caucus in February, going to a BPOU convention in April, potentially CD, and then spending a weekend out of town, hundreds of dollars is not an inclusive process. And it does. I, I'm with you. I There are a lot of activists who are the door, door knockers, are the volunteers, are the folks that get out there. There are, I would say, closer to majority that are not, that are there to make you woo them, to make you spend a third of your resources on them. On and then and then get and to a point. And I just wanted the last thing I would say real quick before we move on to I want to I want to hit on the, the Trump era of things. Um, but uh, that you had um, in a Fox 9 interview had someone had mentioned, you know, or you said they the advice is that I need to have 48 hours to respond to these ads. And you commented, well, we didn't have the resources. And I think that is a huge problem with the endorsement because so much resources go into that time, energy, until the end of May is just focused on 2,500 individuals. And again, I will say I do also have played on the you know team endorsement. I Again, on these campaigns, it's, it's a chess match that if you put enough time and effort and money into, you can win. Um, I'd like to weigh in on that. I did. I have mentioned that uh, I met with someone who was way smarter than me in terms of branding and things like that, because I consider myself relatively politically naive. You know, I served one term in the Senate and, and uh, otherwise I've been on school board for a decade in the nineties. But even had we had the resources, I think that the checking the box with the Republican rhetoric on some of these staple issues, the die was already cast. I think we could have literally matched dollar for dollar and with the way the Roe v. Wade thing unwound and the way it affected and played out across the entire nation. I remember August 2nd, I I thought that this was something that was astonishing to me that the Republicans didn't talk about, but August 2nd, 2022, Kansas, a state that has had since its birth, its politics has been driven by Republicans. It is a conservative state. They had on the ballot the chance to ban abortion. And it went 60 to 40 against that. And if you run the math, the only way that that constitutional proposal could lose 60 to 40 was for pro-life people to vote pro-choice. They were recognizing that they were personally pro-life, but they weren't convinced that they were willing to impose their perspective on others. And, and I, I really think that that should have been a moment, but it wasn't. We didn't talk about it. Uh, we, we just left it. 
And so, but if I also wanted to mention, Becky, that I also have gone through those ranks. I mean, I was president, chairman of the party in Carver County and part of Scott County in the 1990s. I was Carol Malau's first campaign chair when she ran for the House of Representatives. I remember when Tim Pawlenty ran. I think I, I was one of those few parties that perhaps did multiple fundraisers for him. And I was a Tim Pawlenty supporter in 2018. I was a supporter of his when he was running for president. Uh, it, that was a brief campaign, obviously. And uh, and I like Jeff Johnson very much, but I thought Tim Pawlenty in 2018 was really uh, going to be a, a good race in, in November. And obviously, it, it didn't work out that way. But I, I really think that uh, when the buck has to stop somewhere, and I absolutely think that Roe v. Wade changed elections, hundreds of elections across the nation. And I don't feel bad about what we did. I think we accomplished so much more votes than any other candidate. We had approximately the same percentage of votes Tim Pawlenty got when he won. We raised more money than anybody ever has on the Republican side of things. But at the end of the day, we lost by 190,000 votes. The election wasn't stolen from us. It was a fair and square election. I got beat, and I got beat in large part because I wasn't a good enough candidate. I wasn't measured enough. I didn't stick within the guardrails. I thought that I could take my conversational style that I use in the office when I take care of patients with congestive heart failure, ADD, and cancer. And you can't do that when you're running. You have got to be more disciplined than I was accustomed. So let's bring this back since you brought it up, uh, since you brought up Canada, uh, Canada, Kansas. They're two different places. Kansas. Thank you. Dorothy Dorothy is from Kansas. Um, Since... So in your op-ed, which is what got you the invite here, so you propose a constitutional amendment. Do you know why? I I don't know why. I said it in there, but you really had to read it carefully. I said, I no longer, or perhaps never did, have the confidence that elected politicians should be making that decision. And if we leave it the way it is right now, you could have another legislature come in and flip it. I think the people in Minnesota can make this decision. And the best way to do that is to put a ballot on the, put a constitutional amendment on the ballot and let Minnesotans vote. And I think people who write that amendment, whether it'll be, you know, predominantly Democrats or whatever, I think that they will recognize that they need to be measured and thoughtful, but I don't see any reason to leave this as this legislative hot potato. I think it's clear More than 70% of Minnesotans believe that access to abortion should be preserved. And that being the case, I think that the Democrats are in control right now. And if they did this, they, they, they know full well that they could get it done. It may not be to the day of delivery. It may have to be that they're going to have to think about this. But the bottom line is we would then take it away from the politicians. I think we should have the people decide. I think every state should make their decision. So I think that this is where, um, this is where the two Scott Jensen's, or maybe there's many, many Scott Jensen's, right? But this is where. So I understand what you're saying on a kind of a philosophical level, or that this feels like a really good thing. But when you run it up against practicality, I, I don't have. I guess I just don't see. I, I can't game that out and see how we get how that doesn't end, I guess, disastrously. Um, The people who, first of all, I have no faith in anybody to be able to come together and write language um, in a responsible manner. I I just, I I have a very... um, I thought Thomas Jefferson did okay. 
Uh, sure, but th- there's there's no Thomas Jeffersons in the Minnesota legislature right now, and that's who writes the constitutional amendment language. Most bills are not written by legislators. Okay. Fair. So, so how does this work? How do you take this heady idea and turn it into practicality? And then what's the ramification of that? Because you have to think politically in the political realm. What's the ramification of that? What does that do to the the electorate or the elections in the next election cycle if language like that is on the ballot? I think that we can all pontificate in terms of what we can have, what kind of an impact it'll have. But I think we would just say, could we stop the politics for a bit and respond to this issue that was the overarching issue in 2022 across the nation and say, let's get it done and move on. I mean, I originally ran in large part because my first real role as a Republican was a Reagan delegate. And it's about faith and family and freedom and the founding father's wisdom and less taxes, lower go- less government, individual liberties, exceptionalism, celebrate it wherever it goes, wherever it occurs. I don't care where. I think that uh, peace comes through strength far more than it does from begging. And I think that Reagan had a, a lot of things really right. And I don't think he was perfect. I mean, I, I think the 1986 uh, uh, liability bill regarding vaccines, I think, was problematic. But I understand why he did it. And we certainly needed pharmaceutical companies to keep doing research on vaccines. But I, I think that I think we should let the chips fall where they may so we can move on. Minnesota has a lot of challenges and we have a lot of blessings. And right now, I, I think Minnesota, and, and, and feel free to disagree, but I think there's more Minnesotans today that are no longer proud to be from Minnesota than there were at any other time in my life. When I talk to people, they're just not as excited about being from Minnesota. Now, maybe I'm just all wet on that and I'm only talking to a, a narrow group of people that are causing me to be somehow caught up in a silo or a group think. One of the, you know, in, in response to Jeff's discussion, and I'm curious what you think needs to happen first. You think Republicans need to square where they are about abortion before that amendment happens? Because I think you're talking about two different things. I think you're talking about the party needs to be more open per Tom Ridge to candidates who are, that are, that are pro-choice, um, that, that there's much more of a gray area where they are in abortion before we take it to the rest of the state. Because um, the concern I have is if Republicans, th- there seems to be a process problem and a, and a platform problem that the Republicans are having right now on abortion in the sense that since Roe v. Wade, since the Dobbs decision came out, Republicans have been somewhat rudderless on the issue. They've been all over the place. And so Republican, the Republican Party right now, I think doesn't have a clear, precise position on, a, on abortion, whether it's welcoming or not, I don't think they have a clear, articulable position on abortion. Agreed. And so, can Republicans be an, be advocates for having Minnesotans decide as a whole state what they should do? If Republicans, who are going to obviously have to support this initiative, before they know where they are, I mean, it seems that we have both a party process problem, and then once the Republicans figure out where they are in abortion then they could potentially take it to the rest of the state. Because the concern I have is if we offer a constitutional amendment on abortion, we still haven't solved the issue of Republicans are kind of rudderless on the issue of abortion. We're not allowing a safe space for candidates to talk about it in realities, not just in kind of this political vacuum of 
of safe decisions, but in where it is now today. And so I wonder if we we need to allow candidates like yourself and others who are going to come forward, talk about it in an honest, candid way that's an inviting of all Minnesotans before we get to that point. You see what I'm trying to say? Because I worry that if we put a constitutional amendment on the ballot, Republicans don't know where they are and we're just creating the same cycle. So I kind of think, uh, so I think if you wrote a safe, legal, rare constitutional amendment in Minnesota, I think that would pass 75, 25. But let's ask a candidate running for office for the endorsement that stood up and said, I believe abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Would they get endorsed? No. On the Republican side? No. I doubt it. Okay. But does it matter? But they could win the primary and they could win in November. So does it matter? I guess the so that's the that's the question. I, and and I I'm I'm does coming to the, I'm coming in- to this kind of as I'm sitting here I haven't really given this a ton of thought. But is there any way to remove the remove it as a remove abortion as a point of contention? In future elections, I think you inoculate candidates against the issue of abortion if you put the ballot before the people in a form, form of an amendment. And that's what I'm. That's what I'm wondering. I'm not. I, I'm sure I'll hear all about how I'm wrong after the show comes out. But I'm sort of sitting over here going, "Is that a viable strategy? Is that a thing that that we could do? Could we? Could we? Could we amend the constitution in Minnesota to a position?" That's the by far the majority position, Jeff. And then stop. I can't remember the guy's the name. The fight about it. Who's the one of the leading Democrat strategists in Minnesota? I can't remember his name. But the Democrats had talked about doing this until they stopped talking about doing this. And this fellow, and I can't remember his name, but anyway, he made the comment: "There's really no reason for us to do it in 2024." We're already going to get the voter turnout that we need to prevail in our races, but in 2026. So at that point in time, what he was really saying was, I'm not going to do the thing that ensures access to abortion without the potential allowance of legislative reversals of what previous legislatures had done. It was just raw politics. He was saying in 2026, we can play this card then, and we can, that'll give us that election. And if Governor Walz isn't a candidate for a third term, whoever the DFL candidate would be, uh, would be probably, you know, in the driver's seat on that one. But let's say they play that card in 2026. The Democrats have a clear path to play that card because it will, in essence, from their it will be opening up a discussion on abortion that they're very comfortable having because, you know, yeah. the way they talk about it. But if that card is played, can Republicans play back? Can Republicans have that safe space? Because the concern I have is that we're going to have, if it's laid, we're not allowing enough space for Republicans to have that discussion. Michael, I, I don't think there is such a thing as a safe space on this issue for Republicans. I really don't. What do you mean by One that? Of the, I think that Republicans in, in our generation have been so, if you will, programmed by the ever-present backstop of Roe v. Wade for 50 years. And the pro-life, pro-choice battle has been 
such a a powerful influence as to who moves on to the general election that that's one of the reasons why I was interested in having a conversation with you is not because I thought it would do me any good, but I'm thinking if we have this kind of honest conversation, potentially other conservatives can look at this and say, you know what? I'm not with Jensen, but I I think that there's a space there because look what's happened. I mean, arguably Arnie Carlson isn't much of a Republican. Okay. Can we grant me that? That's okay. Fair. So that means that the last time we had a governor that was Republican in this state, other than Tim Pawlenty, was Al Quie. I mean, folks, let's, let's pull our head out of the sand. It's been almost a half a century other than one person, Tim Pawlenty, and arguably he won because of a third-party candidate, and in the second election, because his opponent sort of lost his temper, and it was a close race. Okay. That's fair. So if that's the case, then if we as Republicans can't grow up and recognize the fact that we have been absolutely undercutting our own potential success. I was at a Rochester uh, town hall meeting. I was invited down there in May, about two months ago. They wanted to have a conversation, and they, they felt that I would be an interesting person. So I went down there. And it was standing room only with their Empire Event Center, something like that. But a guy got up after I had given my talk, and I would said I would never run again saying that I would do any kind of abortion ban. I will not do that. I would not ban abortions. I wouldn't have signed the bill that Ron DeSantis signed the six-week bill in, in Florida. And I, I said this, and there was one guy got up, and I talked for 30 or 40 minutes, and he said, Doc, I agree with you on 80% of the issues, but I think that you need to get right with God on the abortion issue. I think you're, you're losing your way. And I said, okay, let's talk about this, sir. I said, we've been at 10,000 abortions every year for about the last 10 years at least. And I said, it hasn't moved. I said... I'm advocating that we put birth control pills over the counter, inexpensive, morning after pill in the medicine cabinet, streamline uh, adoption proceedings, have barrier contraceptives more available, teach natural family planning to young women so that they really know how to do it. And I'm convinced that if you do it my way, I can bring that 10,000 number down to 5,000. But you you take your high moral road, it's going to stay at 10,000. So if you're at 10,000, I'm at 5,000. Tell me who's pro-life here. You're right. So here's right. here's something I have to mention. I, I mentioned uh, before we started rolling that we had met briefly at the state fair. I, st- I actually stood there and just kind of watched you for a while, which in a not creepy way. Sounds I, creepy. Yeah, I know. I know it sounds creepy, but really creepy. <laughs> okay, maybe it was creepy. I don't know. I, I can't I can't comment on my own creepiness. But I sat and watched, and one of the things that I liked is somebody came up to you and talked to you about whatever the issue was. And I don't even remember what it was, but I thought the way that you handled that was really well, because it was one of those 95, five things. And you were like, well, you know, if you think that this little topic is more important than this, 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 and this, then, you know, so be it. But I think it's, you know, whatever. And I really, I really enjoyed that. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but damn, I wish I would have seen that Scott Jensen on the campaign more because uh, the guy who's sitting here tonight and talking to us and the guy that I saw at the state fair versus the guy that was on TV or the guy that said dumb shit, like comparing vaccines to Nazis and all that kind of stuff that we would have had a different outcome. And, and that that's very frustrating to me because my personal, you know, my family is going to suffer because of, financially and in, in some other ways because of 
the laws that were just passed by the trifecta and the Minnesota is going to, I strongly believe that Minnesota is going to be a worse place two years from now because of a number of the laws that, that were put into place. And so that's what makes this, that's the frustration for me is that, that, uh, you know, I, I wish that guy would have come out and I wish that guy had campaigned. It's my own shortcomings. You know, we all have those fatal flaws. We, we have gifts and we have curses. And I'm a, an intensely competitive individual and I hate losing. And sometimes, sometimes not, not wanting to lose can help you sort of lose your way. And you make comments in the heat of the moment that were truly ill-advised. I think one of the mistakes I made was there were times where I would be given information and I needed to be more committed to the notion of I needed to either corroborate that or have some information so others could corroborate it. And I think some of the ill-advised things I said were in those moments where I'd been fed some inputs or concerns. And rather than, if you will, trust but verify kind of thing, I didn't. And so, you know, I'm not... I'm not sitting there beating myself up. I, I feel really good about my life. I think I've been really blessed. And I think, like I said, we, we did a lot of great things. We, we pushed some issues. But uh, at the end of the day, I was a candidate that suffered from some naivete. And, uh, and I think that I had no idea that that backstop, that protective backstop of Roe v. Wade would be taken, the rug pulled from out underneath us. Because had it not been, the abortion would have been much less of an issue. And, uh, but I'm thankful for the fact that this has really propelled me to step back. You know, I, I lost an election. I wanted to win. And in the next six to eight months, I had the chance to really do a lot of talking with people, talking with a lot of patients in my office. And I'm in Wester Carver County. And honestly, a lot of my patients are pretty darn conservative. But the number of patients that told me what Becky said a while ago about, you know, Access to abortion, while you can be personally pro-life, access to abortion as a policy decision being pro-choice. And so I've had a chance to step back and say, okay, Scott, give up the Republican rhetoric that you've digested for 50 years. And what do you really think? And honestly, when I look at the technology and when I look at how people are feeling, I think that it's pretty darn clear in Minnesota Far and away, the majority think that safe, legal, and rare should be a reasonable goal. And I, I, I think I wish that we would have had conversations about that. That those three words, safe, legal, rare, it, it would have potentially, regardless if it didn't change the outcome, it would have been good for Minnesotans. So I, I want to say I, I appreciate your candor in the conversation. I, I very much appreciate the self reflection. I'd love to make this conversation required listening for any future candidate for statewide office. Because I think what, what I saw and um, uh, people react to authenticity. It, it, it's, I think that's one of the reasons that Donald Trump has been very successful. And a lot of people look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Donald Trump authentic, but like Donald Trump is just like this larger than life character. That's just an asshole. And then like, but he's authentically that, right? So so you know that you're getting the authentic Donald Trump, whatever it is. 
and people react to authenticity. And I think that a lot of kind of that wandering of who is this guy, what does he really believe, is what pe- is what some people reacted to. And so I so I think that I'd love to have I'd love to have the ability to have that conversation with candidates to say, no, you have to go be your authentic self because it's always easier. It's like it's like when you tell somebody, you know, if you just tell the truth, then you don't have to spend all that time keeping your eyes straight, right? You have to be authentic and you have to just say what you believe and let the chips fall where they may instead of, you know, I I, I had, I'm going to turn this back on myself for one second here. Um, I was a small time candidate, you know, I ran for city council and one, um, two to one margin, by the way. Um, but I knocked on a door and even though it has nothing to do with city city council in any way, shape or form, some lady looked at me and she goes, I need to know your position on abortion. And I stopped and I went, okay, I've got two choices here. I can try and couch my language to see where it is that she wants me to, what does she want me to say? Or I could just say what it is and then move on to the next door. And I'm glad to say I took the right, I had the right answer and it turned out that that was the answer she wanted to hear anyway, which is even better because then she put a sign out in her front yard, (laughs) right? But but the point is, even at that low level, I, I made that calculation and went, oh, should I say what I believe or should I kind of go, should I couch that? And so I think the answer is really, always say what you believe because then people can make an honest decision based on what it is. And then we don't get into the situation where, you know, I want to say yes and no. We talk a lot about messaging and, and folks saying what they believe and the trouble and distraction that can get into, but I want, so say what you believe, but you don't have to say everything you believe all the time, right? Um, (laughs) You don't have to give up. You have to answer the question that's asked. You don't have to give up additional information. So I want to say one thing to what you said and one thing to what you said, um, that this should be required listening. I, uh, for future statewide candidates completely agree. Um, and with that, because, you know, as Michael mentioned before, um, we don't see a lot of candidates unsuccessful candidates take accountability a lot of times. Um, and you have, have have done that. And I think that is very refreshing. I do also want to put you on the spot a little bit because a couple times you have commented about ill-advised, um, you know, ill-advised comments or, or you know, suggestions and, and different things coming through. And I think this is one thing, you know, I've I've been staff, you know, I spent almost 10 years working as as staff um, for electeds or uh, candidates. And so I do understand that that is, can be a tough spot to be in. But without, I'm not asking you to name names here, but in the realm of advice for a future statewide candidate, what could you say? Because there are a lot of times people who are perpetually a lot around the same statewide candidate or around statewide candidates that have been for the last cycles. Um, you know, I've, you know, of we don't have a lot of success, so it's losing campaigns and the same people have been around the losing campaigns and are continually hired. So to the future statewide candidates in this state, what would you say about, again, not saying name names, but what would you say about hiring staff, hiring previous, um, you know, previous operatives that have been involved and and being able to be authentic out on the campaign trail while also being a candidate that staff can work with? I would say that you need to make certain that whoever you hire, you respect them because I think most of 
the people that I encountered in terms of in our team and our staff, they had excellent instincts and we had discussions about the need to stay in the guardrails. But I think both Matt Burke and I, our nature is to venture out. And so you need to make certain that the people you surround yourself with, you have enough respect for that you will not casually go against the tenor and the flavor that you as a team have decided you would try to pursue. For me, one of my danger spots, I think, is in that moment where you're out campaigning, there's maybe a rally going on or something like that, and you've just been fed some information that it's sort of at the front of your mind, and you uh, you should not go there. I remember, <laughs> this is sort of humbling, but I remember one time I was at church, and I just I arrived just 10 minutes before it started, and the pastor came up to me and said, Dr. Jensen, uh, the person who was supposed to read the uh, the reading today uh, didn't show. Would you mind doing the reading? And uh, pinch hitting. I said, sure, I'd be glad to. Well, that day when I'd been rounding at the hospital that morning, I'd taken care of a, a patient that was very sick and was going to die of prostate, uh, prostate cancer. And so I'm reading this verse in front of the church. And the verse is uh, and something like, do you think our Lord would regard this? And it's supposed to be a prostitute. And I said, do you think our Lord would regard this prostate as being problematic or something like that? And I mean, I looked at the congregation. I said, excuse me, let's start that again. And But it was at the forefront of my mind. I'm thinking about this patient with prostate cancer. That's what happens as a, to a candidate too. And I think that's where you really need to be careful because when the adrenaline's flowing and the crowd is reacting, it's, it's just easy. And, and probably for someone like me that can be so competitive and and that was, again, that was just on me. So you have to hire people that you respect enough that you, you will really be hesitant to violate some of those frameworks that you created together. And, and again, that was, that was on me. I want to give, I was, I said it in the precondition, everyone get an opportunity to speak. I want to close up here, but I want to make sure we go around the horn. Anyone want to add one more question? Anything else you want to discuss that you didn't get an opportunity to get into yet? My only comment is that if anybody wants the list of people not to hire on campaigns, I'll provide it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought we had a great team, but uh, again, uh, we fell short. And I think that, I think both Matt Burke, we've gotten together and we both know that there were times we, we used words that we didn't realize they were, I mean, sometimes hot button words emerge during a campaign and then they maybe at the beginning of the campaign weren't, and then they become that. I, I would say one thing, I guess, I enjoy being in the Senate, and I think part of the reason I was perceived as that outspoken maverick was because I never saw myself as political. I think that changed. It has to change when, you be, when you're running for governor, but I think when all of a sudden you're running for governor and something really turns in your direction like precinct caucus night, I, I look back on that, and certainly that was a springboard from which we could really become legitimate contenders to get the endorsement in Rochester in May. But it also made it so easy to go down that slippery slope and become a less attractive candidate in November. And then when you have a pivotal issue like Roe v. Wade get overturned, that that's just, I mean, that was just the way it was. I think that 
there were things that were fair and there were things that were unfair. But I, I do think that I was, I was attacked a lot and I'm fine with, I'm fine with that. That's, that's part of the game, but I'll, I'll always smile when I think about this ridiculous notion that I worked for Planned Parenthood. I mean, that was one that went around a lot and it was used by my opponents. When you're a resident, if I go over to Children's Hospital and do a physical exam on a kid that's being admitted, or if I go to Hennepin County and uh, irrigate someone's stomach out who's got a GI bleed because they're, uh, their liver's uh, cirrhotic, I'm not working for those places. I'm a student providing a service. And in a residency, you have to get certain numbers in order to finish your residency and get your, your board certification and your medical license. And in the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s, it was tough for someone like me who looked a little bit like Dewey Hauser. And, uh, you know, I needed to shave every three days whether I needed to or not. And to get some of the procedures that to hit the numbers. And so in our residency, uh, we had a relationship with Planned Parenthood where we could go over and we could probably do a half a dozen pap smears, take care of some STDs and start uh, women on birth control pills. And we had to have like four half days of that or something like that. I can't remember what it was. But I mean, I was never credentialed by them. I was never insured by them. I never had malpractice insurance then because we were always working under the tutelage of our director. But again, I understand that that's just the way politics are. But I think that that probably is a little bit of a crawl in my throat. It's no big deal. Well, I want to th- thank you for coming in. And I mean that sincerely. Um, I have to say that this has been uh, close to 80 plus minutes of a conversation. And I'm impressed. And I really appreciate your candor, your honest approach, your just your thoughtfulness. And I wish that uh, not to not to poke, but I wish that Minnesotans would have saw that. And, and I hope that you leave this interview knowing that one of the reasons I think I'm, and I have to just be candid with you. I think this is going to be our most downloaded episode. I think it's going to be our, probably our most significant conversation. I think people's heads are going to spin when they know that you and I were in the same room and we're talking on a podcast together. But I have to say that I have to also kind of acknowledge, um, the reality of how I'm perceiving you. And and I wish I would have had this opportunity to get to know you during the election cycle. I wish this Scott Jensen, and I know there's been a little bit of a journey here with you and, and I'm just impressed by this. And I want you to know that, that as you go down this road, talking about stuff that, that if you ever want to come back on the podcast and talk, you're going to have a place and you're going to have a podcast that's going to be receptive to this level of thoughtfulness. It's going to be a safe place to have these conversations this is actually, I think, the definition of what we wanted to do. And I think I'm incredibly proud and to be here with you, Becky, and, and Jeff, you too, uh, but also to you, Scott, for coming in and being willing to, to be vulnerable, to talk to us, to look us in the eye, and to have these honest conversations and, and to be willing to do it. That's how we're going to change things. And I'm a better person for having done a podcast with Scott Jensen. And I'm incredibly appreciative of the lessons that I've learned as you've talked and where, where I could have in my analysis and commentary uh, may have been uh, more accommodating uh, to nuance and thoughtfulness. And that's a lesson I'm going to take from today's discussion, but I'm going to commit myself to letting you know that anytime you want to come back on, you want a safe place to come in and have 
a hotly contested debate. We, uh, we're not going to get into it today because of time, but we do food takes. We'd welcome you to come back and maybe do a food take with us to talk about some other light subjects. But I think, I think one of the things that I'm going to leave with is recognizing that independent of what happened on election day, you are taking on a noble task right now. I think we all can agree that he's taking on a noble task. And I think that we should, if we're going to be ask of others to be the better angels, we should be ourselves. And we should provide that space for people like you who want to improve the process, who want to make the Republican Party more inclusive and realistic and want to have our state be a better place. And that's the exact type of person that I know Becky and I and Jeff want to reward with opportunities to come on. And I hope you know that it's sincere and you're welcome back anytime. Agreed. Thank you, Michael, Jeff, and Becky. I'd love to come back on sometime. And I think that um, perhaps I could say one of the reasons I have not elected to do a regular podcast is it's a lot of work and you have to prepare and you have to be uh, up to date on the topics and you have to have questions. And I knew that the three of you would be uh, people that would not, you know, make it a bunch of softballs or something like that. I knew that we'd have a good conversation. And uh, it was. So I, I'd enjoy coming back sometime. That'd be great. And one thing I have to pray for is Becky has horrible food takes. <laughs> and so be prepared for some controversy about her food no. takes. So, Thank you. I, I really do appreciate it as well. I just want to concur everything that he said. And, and we're grateful for this time again on a Sunday evening. And um, yeah, look forward to coming back in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was... Um... Wow. Different. Explain, Jeff. So, uh, I did not know what to expect uh, when, when, uh, as we talked about. I mean, Scott has said a lot of things. Scott Jensen has said a lot of different things, and has been on multiple sides of the same issue. In in you know, and so I, I have to be honest. I, I came in ready for more hostility or not hostility, but I mean, I, I expected it to be a little bit more spirited and I had some very pointed questions ready. And, um, I, you know, with the, with the stretch goal of maybe getting him, get, maybe getting Scott Jensen to take responsibility for how the election turned out. And he did that immediately and took, kind of took the wind out of my sails. I, I gotta be honest. Um, in in a good way, right? I mean, it, but it just definitely sort of knocked me off my game because I wasn't I wasn't sure what to expect, and I, and honestly, and that was based on, again, not Senate Scott Jensen, but what had happened um, during the campaign, and then in the first few interviews after the campaign, that that the comments were not, you know, w where he is today, and obviously he's somebody who's um, reflected a lot and done a lot of kind of thinking about how he got to where he got. And, and uh, honestly, I, I'm 100% sincere in that that's what we need from candidates. And honestly, if Jeff Johnson had gone through the, the similar, a similar thing, uh, after the last, after his first failed election, I think he probably either would not have run again, or would have been a much different or better candidate the second time around. But you don't see that a lot. That is very rare. Um, it, if candidates do self-reflect, they generally are the ones that don't 
they're not going to talk about it, or they're certainly not going to come on a podcast and talk about it, right? But those are the ones who probably quietly go away and you don't hear from them again. So um, I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised. I was challenged. I didn't really know. I was kind of speechless at a couple points and had to recalibrate and decide what it was I was going to say. So um, what, did you, what did you guys think? Becky. <laughs> Well, I think we could do an entire show probably on our reaction to that. I think I will start with saying, I think you said it best in the mid- middle of the interview that it was very refreshing. Um, I, I think I give him a lot of props. I think I'm a little confused, which is not uncommon, but um, after reading the op-ed as somebody who has written uh, four candidates and electeds before, I kind of thought it was not his words. I kind of thought it was, you know, a, a staffer who wrote for him and that he was maybe going to come in a little bit more soft on things and not be where he was. Um, I think he wrote it. I think that that was in his words. I think he is proud of that stance and is very frustrated that he did not come out that way during the campaign. I am still questioning. I did ask, you know, um, why, as the candidate, you didn't put your foot down. So again, I, I've worked for some strong-willed candidates who, at the end of the day, said, nope, uh, I appreciate your concern. I appreciate your advice. This is the way we are going. So I am, I, I still am, you know, a little unsure of why that didn't happen in some capacity. But he he very much owned it, that he did not push back. And this is where they landed. And this is where he stood behind. And he respected his staff and, and went that way. So, um I love his stance on the endorsement process. I hope we hear more about that. Um, I obviously uh, am appreciative of his stance on on the abortion issue and 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 being open to have that conversation about Republicans um, needing to change their ways. Of you can still be pro- personally pro life, um, but having you know a- allowing there to be different laws and policies surrounding that issue. Um, I guess I didn't think I was going to come out saying I hope we hear more from him on this messaging, um, but I do hope we hear more from Scott Jensen on this topic or these topics. What's interesting when you when you say the the way that you just said that about the abortion issue being personally pro-life, but I would actually say that a lot of Democrats fall into that category, that a lot of Democrats are personally pro-life and would make different choices in their particular in in their lives or but want the option to be there for other people and have found republicans the the hard stance from republicans very hard to swallow and then made it very hard to vote for a republican and and if i were a democrat that fit into that category i would certainly have had trouble voting for scott jensen in the last election cycle I did not expect the interview to go that way. And I'm intentionally going last because I want as much time between the interview ending before I had to speak to think about it. I am uh, impressed by his candor and his willingness to come in and provide that level of candor to us. I was really impressed by it. And there was a lot I found myself agreeing with related to Scott Jensen. I also will know that it's consistent with what I know you and I talked about, and in some degree you and I, Becky, talked about, both Jeff and you, I talked about prior to the election, which is there was kind of this two Scott Jensen's. 
And I think we saw the reclaiming today of the the stronger Scott Jensen. This is who he wants to be. And I hope that he continues down this road. I hope he continues to talk about issues in this level of candidness. And I'm really appreciative that we were an outlet for that because I wanted to be rewarded. And it's going to be, I'm wrestling with that in my head because I've been very hard on Scott Jensen and his analysis and his commentary. And, and I saw a different side of him tonight. And so I'm leaving, as I said in the interview, I'm leaving today with a sense of, I think a responsibility that I have to now portray his sincerity, which I think is what he believes. And I think it should be rewarded. And I, and I would, I was not expecting to leave an interview saying we, there needs to be more Scott Jensen, but there does need to be this discussion. And if Scott Jensen is willing to, you know, I'm sensitive to the comments about sacrificial lamb because I, I want him, I hope he gets rewarded for his candor. And I think that that's a shift in my thinking and about Scott Jensen. And I'm really appreciative of the fact that he was willing to be, as I said, vulnerable with us, come in and talk to us because I think, I think we were maybe the perfect group of people to talk to. And I think that that is something that uh, I think is going to be beneficial to his overall objective of having a discussion in the party on this. I mean, have you ever, can you point to any candidate uh, for any office up and down the ticket who has said, I lost, I lost significantly, and it was my fault? No. I mean- it, it, It's certainly not common. It is, it, it, I, I, I think I was also speechless at times. I had all these prepared questions. I've had multiple conversations with you both um, of, of, of different things that I, I wanted to touch on and, and how I expected this to go. And, and it just, I think it was very shocking in a good way very to, good. to hear that. I will also say, Becky, we've, one of the reasons that we, I, I don't think I said this with, with Scott Jensen here, but I won't, I maybe should have or shouldn't have, I don't know, but I'll just say it this way. One of the reasons Jensen was always someone that, as I said to him when he was here, most people have always said, it'd be great if you had Scott Jensen on. It'd be great if you mm -hmm. had Scott Jensen. I told my sisters, uh, I was coming in to interview a podcast with Scott Jensen and they were wondering if there was going to be security there. <laughs> Who else was going to be in the room? What was going to happen? They were really surprised by it. Part of the reason I was hesitant about having Scott Jensen on is because I expected it to be an argument. And it's something that we've talked about on the podcast is we, aside from maybe food takes or general discussions, we're not interested in this being a screaming match. And so to, to have the type of discussion that we had with Scott Jensen and, and to now have an opportunity for him to come back and talk to us, it's just kind of destabilizing. It kind of throws my head off a little bit, but I'm really impressed by how he handled it and how we did. I agree. I, I'm grateful that uh, you reached out after that op-ed. I'm great, grateful that he immediately responded and was so open um, and that we were able to to make this happen, even though everybody is spending a Sunday evening in a, in a well, let's just call it a sauna as the it, building's AC is not on. And um, it was uh, worth it a hundred times over. What? Go ahead. I want to see what the reaction is going to be. I'm very interested in what the reaction is going to be from from others. I'll, I'll be I'll be very interested to see if people who are not in the room get the same read that we did. Um obviously when you're when you are in person, you get body language, you get the kind of hand motions and just all of those things the that, vibe. Right. And and so so you get it. So I'll be interested to see how much that comes through 
and what the reaction is, because I think it'll be, we have the opportunity to get people to change their mind. Um, I don't know if it, I, I'm hopeful that that's how it works. I, I just don't know. It'll be, it, it, it will, it'll be a fun week to kind of pay attention to the reaction. Do you think people will be surprised that we interviewed Scott Jensen? Yeah. Well, they won't be after I send a tweet out in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. No, you got to wait to do that. We're going to, we'll, we'll discuss that. We'll discuss that post show, but I just want to thank you both uh, for being a part of the conversation. I think it was pretty special what we did. And that was going through my head as this conversation was going on. I'm like, wow, this is really amazing. So thank you both for doing that. Well, thank you for lining it up. It's uh, can't wait. Uh, see the reaction. All right. Bring them in. Sounds good. Well, we're going to go to the food fight this week. And the food fight is over top sandwiches. Now, I'm going to ask Becky because I assume there's some complication she has about the subject. Becky, what what complication or what asterisk do you want to put to the subject of sandwiches? I have zero asterisks. I just feel very strongly about this topic. Uh, Jeff, do you have any qualifier, qualifiers or anything you want to say about sandwiches? No, I, I mean, I, I, I understand what a sandwich is and, you know, I, it was, it was hard to, to, it was hard to go down to five, but I did I the best I can. Let me start off by saying, is a hot dog a sandwich? Of course it is. Becky? It's meat, it's meat between would, bread. I would technically kind of agree. I mean, not on its face, but, you know, by definition, yeah, kind of. Um, I consider a hot dog as much as I consider a tomato a fruit. In a sense that it may meet the definition of what a sandwich is, but just, just in, in, in every day, in everyday use, it's it's not what we think of as a sandwich. And what so, if you took a hot dog and cut it into little pieces and put it on white bread, like a traditional sandwich? Then that would be a hot dog sandwich. Well, uh, that's insane. It's not. <laughs> no one's going to do that. But I think well, interesting because I did expect there to be much more controversy. About um, whether well, we a dog was a sandwich or not. We haven't heard the lists yet, so well, real I don't quick, know if there's going to be. As somebody who has children in the age range that I hear food things are very particular, if you asked your kids if they wanted a hot dog sandwich and you just gave them a hot dog in a bun, would they be peeved that they are not eating a hot dog sandwich? Yes, because right. my kids are extremely pedantic. What's a uh, hot dog sandwich? I just explained it. You just take a hot dog and you you know slice it up and put it between white bread. Oh, okay. I mean, all right. I see what you're saying. Yes. Okay. I thought it was thought there was much more mincing. That's gourmet. And well, you don't have to mince it. No, I you can just cut I, it into little pieces, into little circles. You know. This might be the only time I ever get to say this on the podcast. I thought there was going to be more grinding of the hot dog. <laughs> all right. So That's gross. All right. It's let's. I gross think and creepy. Jeff, Jeff, I think this is what we should do. I think because Becky has made the claim that she has very strong opinions about this, I think we should let her go first each round. Okay. All right. So, Becky, sheer kick us off. Okay. But I'm going to say, I think you don't get too high hopes for this. I feel strongly oh, in this. I don't have high hopes. No one, there's a difference between you having a strong opinion and me having high hopes. There's no, having been through these many food fights with you, you're really, I mean, there's not any high hopes here, Becky, okay? So this is why I feel so strongly. 
So there's, I would say, I don't know if it's a new thing. It was new to me um, that while you are pregnant, they recommend you not eat deli meat. Now, yes, there's some like listeria that you can get from deli meat. You can heat it up and then eat it. But like a cold cut of some sort deli sandwich, not recommended while pregnant. So because, yes, I am the anxious person I am. I followed everything by the book. By the end of my pregnancy, I wanted a deli sandwich more than I wanted a beer, White Claw, whiskey, sushi, anything all combined. And so this is, in particular, one deli sandwich that was the top of all of my cravings was a beach club sandwich from Jimmy John's. It's got the ham. It's got the turkey. It's got the avocado spread and cucumbers. And you know what happened when I was in the hospital? There was a massive turkey shortage due to an avian flu. And Jimmy <laughs> oh Johnson, my goodness! Well, oh, in a beach club, and they did not have turkey, and I had to settle for—I mean, a plain old ham sandwich, which that's, was delicious, but not what I was craving for nine months. So, my yeah, number one, Jimmy John's beach club sandwich. Jeff, you go up. All right. So, my number one is because. The what you can't ever get is what you want most. So my number one sandwich is called the Bronx Bomber. And it was a sandwich that was made uh, by the guy who owned this little Italian place that was in the Dayton Radisson Arcade in about mm, 1999, 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. And he was... it. it it was like this Italian deli or Italian cafe or whatever. And he had all these great sandwiches and the lady who was the cashier was a crack addict. And I, because she, and I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean, because she told us about her crack addict thing that she had gone on and how she was not on crack anymore and how we should be proud of her and all that. Um, and I don't know where the guy went. I can't, I don't, for the life of me, I cannot find the name of the place. I wanted to see if the guy maybe opened up another restaurant somewhere else, but man, that was the best sandwich I ever had. The Bronx Bomber from the unnamed Italian cafe in the Dayton Radisson Arcade in 2001-ish. Interesting. Uh, my number one is grilled cheese. And um, what's interesting about a grilled, what's interesting about my list, which I'll say in advance, it is a combination of two name brand sandwiches and three uh, general sandwiches that you can have in your kitchen uh, at your home anytime, but grilled cheese sandwich. I in fact didn't have a grilled cheese sandwich until I was in eighth grade. And I, I had it at hockey camp. That kind uh, of explains a lot. Actually. That happened at <laughs> hockey camp when um, in the summer I was up at a hockey camp in Northern Minnesota, they serve grilled cheese sandwiches and tomato soup. Absolutely fell in love with it. I love a grilled cheese sandwich. Okay, so describe your grilled cheese sandwich. Yep. White I bread, a uh, couple pieces of cheese, American, maybe another cheese, not too much cheese, um, and just grilled to perfection with uh, a side of uh, tomato soup. It's just perfect. Okay, so here's where you're wrong. Uh, first of all, you if you're putting butter or something else on the outside, you should be replacing that with mayo. I've heard uh, that. So you absolutely have to put mayo on the outside of the bread. Uh, it just makes it better. And then uh, you should never have American cheese, basically ever. Okay. A nice cheddar. Maybe no, some kind of Velveeta, fake cheese no, all the way. No. And then you dip no. it in ketchup. Yuck. Yeah. Right. I know. I might try it though. 
I might try it. Okay. All right, Becky, number two, you're up. My t- number two is a Cubano, Cuban sandwich from pretty much anywhere. Love it. Again, it has my ham. I love my ham. I, you do. That's where the food fight started, right? When yep. you were pro ham and your pro your pro ham agenda. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you have a favorite place you get it from, Becky? Uh, I mean, I probably should, but I now don't have one written down and can't think of one off the top of my head. All right. Uh, Jeff, number two. Jersey Mike's number 13. That's Which the Italian. That's interesting. Yep. So both of you have named both of you have named if I'm if I'm paying attention correctly a Jersey Mike's. No, no. mine was Jimmy John's. Jimmy John's. Jimmy John's. That's all right. Um, that's right. Uh, my number two is I had it in New York once. I was in uh, New York for the Republican National Convention in 2004, which is the same year Becky was graduating from high school. We learned um, <laughs> uh, the Carnegie Deli, a New York pastrami and corned beef. It is an amazing sandwich. If I was on death row. And I could get that as my last sandwich. I probably would. Or my last meal. It's that good. And what I did after having one of them in New York when I was there, um, I went. I got as many uh, corned beef sandwiches as I could when I was in New York. It was just fantastic. Pastrami and corned beef. But Carnegie I Deli. Can't, I, I can't get past the name corned beef. I, have, I don't think I've ever had corned beef. I just don't think that corned is something that I want as an adjective. And it's just, uh, I just, I can't do it. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. In any place you can get a corned beef and pastrami, but if, since this is the food fight on my top list, I wanted to put a marker down. Okay. Number three. Number three. Being the good Minnesotan I am, walleye sandwich. Specifically, love the gre- uh, the grilled walleye from Sweeney's. They have a jalapeno like tartar sauce thing that they make. It's not like spicy, spicy, but it has enough. Oh my God. I like dream about it. That's great. Okay. Walleye sandwich. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, my, was not either. my number three, a Devani's club on ciabatta. Wow. Ooh, I'm so, I gotta say, I, I'm not going to cheat because I'd be wrong. But I didn't have Devani's Assorted on here, and I am like really sad and disappointed with myself. Uh, there's a couple of places that that you know. Now that I'm looking, I made this list a couple of days ago. I'm looking at it again, and I'm going, eh, maybe today I would I would have swapped a couple out. But yeah, uh, my number three is the just the Cassetta sandwich at Cassetta. Uh, I love it. It's uh, open face uh, Italian bread. Italian, okay. Italian patties uh, and their their special sauce is just great. Because let's, cl- let's be clear about something: an open face sandwich is not a sandwich. It's sure just it a pile of food. No, sure. it's just well, a, just a pile of food. Okay, and like it's just piling some crap on bread. That's that's okay. That's not. Oh, a, you're wrong. Oh, show. I think we need a poll. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Is an open face sandwich a sandwich? Just because you call it a sandwich doesn't make it a sandwich. It, it's just it, 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 you pile a bunch of stuff on a plate. It doesn't doesn't make it a sandwich all right we'll get into that that's fair that's a good that's a good post-show uh discussion okay becky number four my number four is also a pastrami sandwich i went with cecil's in st paul um which i believe did it cut shut down um no, I think is it still open i used to live just south of there uh in in highland park and omg so good some spicy peppers on there oh so good i haven't Becky, I'm really proud of you. I haven't been proud of you 
from a food fight since you picked Charleston Chew. I mean, since you picked Hunter Grand Bar, excuse me, Hunter Grand Bar. So you totally redeemed yourself after months of 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 disappointment. But I'm really proud of you. That's a great pick. If I was going to pick a pastrami uh, or pastrami or corned beef sandwich like locally, that's where I would go. So great job. Way to keep it local. Thank you. Uh, are we yeah. on my number four? Yeah. Number so four. my number four is the Firehouse Subs Hook and Ladder, oh. which is a, kind of a turkey ham. I think it's turkey ham bacon kind of club kind of thing. Interesting. Uh, the more meats on a sandwich, the better. So mm-hmm. uh, the more variety of meats. You, you know, if if you if turkey, eh, turkey and bacon, much better. Turkey ham and bacon, much better. You know, turkey mm-hmm. roast beef ham and bacon, even better. Interesting. Okay. Uh, my number four is BLT. I love just a basic BLT. What I like about a, a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich is with the ingredients as specific, it's difficult to screw up. Um, there's not a lot of variation. Um, and with when the main ingredients are described uh, as they are, it's I think it's generally like a universal sandwich. It's difficult to screw up a BLT. It's a safe, it's a safe, safe sandwich to have uh, all over the place, and and that's why I'm going with the BLT. See, and I love bacon. I I mean, like any like any normal human being, I love bacon, but I, I've never been able to get behind bacon as the main ingredient on a sandwich. It feels like it's missing something. I need a, to back to the multi meat uh, comment from a few minutes ago. I, you throw a little turkey on there. Now we're talking. You know, but just bacon by itself, I, I just, I don't know, can't do it. Nothing wrong with bacon by itself. It's a standalone. Unlike <laughs> ham. Yeah, well, I mean, ham is awful, but yeah. let's move on. That's right. Oh, you guys set me up perfectly. My oh, number five. Oh. I can't. Don't say, it. Don't I say can't. it. You got an opportunity to change. Don't say it. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Ham, cheese, and butter. Specific again, it was the first thing that uh, I had post hospital at home. My mom and sister put down or brought over fresh deli, shaved ham, and cheese. Are we doing buns? Yeah, yeah. are we doing uh, like the best thing I've ever eaten? Are we doing craft singles on there too? No, I mean, like, I can get can I get like some Sargento? Is that okay? I mean, for cheddar over American, okay. I'm just checking ham. Sandwich. Yeah. I just and Jeff Maybe and I felt right. Better if I put a little spicy mustard on there. Jeff and I fell right into that, Becky. You really yeah. did. You really, you really yeah. set us up. You really Michael, set us up. My notes even say just to piss Michael off. Like, <laughs> nice. nice job. Nice Fantastic. job. Fantastic. Uh I'm gonna go with another defunct sandwich. Hopefully it comes back someday. But the Arby's classic Italian sub. Uh you may not think that Arby's would be a great sub kind of place, but when they were in the sub game, they were really good at it. Toasted the buns. They did some good. I mean, you know, they had it. They had it going on. So hopefully someday it will return. But the Arby's classic Italian sub. Uh, my number five. I hope you're sitting down. My number five. Uh, I did not have this type of sandwich until I was in college. And it is a PB&J. Yeah, I knew that's where you were going to go. Did not have a, I did not have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich until I was in college. Were your parents just like giving you like full turkey dinners for lunches? No, or like- I just, 
in just, New Jersey. Well, I've never been. Um, I've kind of a weird relationship with peanut butter, in a sense that I, I, I would like that to be a clip. Can we clip that yeah, part? Okay, what I mean by that is, I don't like peanut butter in things as like an ingredient and stuff. Um, but I'll have it like standalone, and um, like with like on a sandwich. Uh, and so just, I think. You know, there was just, I think my parents miscalculated my disdain for peanut butter when I wouldn't eat, like, you know, you get, you get the occasional crazy person who makes Rice Krispie bars with peanut butter or stuff like that or other things. I just don't like, I like peanut butter in a jar. Now, if I'm making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, uh, which I do quite frequently, uh, it will be raspberry jelly and creamy peanut butter on white bread. That's what it is. That's, that's my go-to peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Sounds dreadfully boring. Thank you. No, no response. I mean, other than yeah, it's kind of predictable. Are you guys peanut butter and jelly? Uh, I will say, I will say, my kids have not had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in in at least thirty minutes. So in at least thirty minutes. Yeah, they they um they live on the PB and J. I, I think if they if they could eat nothing but if if you were to if you were to give them just one food to live on, that's probably what they would both pick. So. Uh, one, of them's a, one of them's a strawberry and one of them's a uh, grape, though. Interesting. Mm. I'm a chunky peanut butter. Best. Okay, so that's the worst opinion anyone's of course, ever had. That, that's, remember, remember when a few minutes ago that I said I was really, you'd really redeemed yourself? I mean, yeah, chunky I peanut really, butter. I don't even think chunky peanut butter people like, I don't even, I don't even think Jif likes chunky peanut butter. Uh, well, because it's Skippy, first of all, not Jif. Is that's a whole nother thing. Um, and then I'm a raspberry jam. Um, my mother-in-law has raspberry um and she makes raspberry jam and it's to die for. So I wasn't that far off. No. Well, that's great. Boring, but that's fine. So um of the I had three homemade kind of sandwiches, kinds that you can have basically anywhere. Um, and then two name brand. I think you guys have more name brand. Mine were all name brand. 50 50. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be, I think the, 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 what we're going to learn from this, what I think our opportunity is to take offline is, or online from this episode is, is a hot dog a sandwich? Is an open face sandwich a sandwich? Because it's definitely not. Well, you can run your own poll, but the the, uh, the official Twitter account of this well, is going to... I will, and we'll get an answer. And don't tag me in the tweet. <laughs> Speaking we'll of tweets... It. Tweets of the week. Tweets of the week. Did you see that? I did that like a pro. That was a, a pro transition right there. Not as good as the Patrick food fight. No, I'm I mean, Patrick did a, did, a much, did, a, did a great job on that, but yes, uh, but I will... Yep. Jeff, Becky went first with the food fight. Why do you go first with tweet of the week? So, so my tweet of the week is, um, it's like a, it's like a tweet, but then it it spurred a lot of conversation. And so, uh, the first place I saw this was something called Safety Vid at Safety Vid, which Midwest Safety or something like that. Anyway, uh, but it's uh it's the video of the pickup driver who uh, slams into the other car and knocks it off, uh, knocks it into the, into the shoulder, which got a lot of, uh, generated a lot of conversation. A guy named Nathaniel Hood 
uh, tagged me in a tweet that said the driver of this truck should be arrested, charged with a crime, and lose their driver's license for a long time. But I'll bet $100 the truck driver gets a slap on the wrist, small fine, and will be back to road raging within a day. We since found out that the driver was ticketed for something ridiculous like malicious lane usage or some thing that he'll pay, you know, 50 bucks. And I'm sure he's back road raging uh, as we speak. So Nathaniel Hood, you were correct. Uh, that's the way the system works. And everybody zipper merge. That's good work. Good work. Good work. Becky, what's your tweet of the week? Yes, mine is by um, at Emily underscore Mernane. And she tweeted, did you come from a, quote, never take medicine for any reason whatsoever, quote, family, or, quote, you might get a headache today, take 12 Advil family. (laughs) I think there are very two extremes. You either grew up with no medicine whatsoever or always medicine. I was an always medicine preemptive. uh, Ibuprofen was a big thing in our family. And uh, that's where I stand. We were much much closer to to the other side and not that there was not that you were not allowed medicine but i would say that the medicine was we were a little stingy with handing out the pills uh shout out to my mother who is a listener and she uh um it was a firm we we often would hear if you complained about an ailment or a headache and she would say did you take anything for it and if you said no she goes then i don't want to hear it wow which is fair right Uh, yeah that is fair no complaining until you no take com- medicine and it doesn't work. Great advice, mom. Great yep. advice. Thanks, mom. Um, my tweet of the week, and I was a little nervous uh, that Becky was going to steal this from me. Um, but uh, it's a uh, Olivia Beavers uh, with, I believe, Politico put out a picture of uh, House Majority Whip Tom Emmer saying Tuesday mood. And if anyone's ever been around uh, Congressman Emmer, uh, or has worked with him in the past. They've seen that face probably before. This is a tweet that, uh, as other tweets of the week probably do, better translate visually than it does on air. But uh, Congressman Emmer, who was just recently a guest of our podcast, retweeted it and said, this is my happy face. <laughs> and so I thought I will be uh, sharing uh, that as my tweet of the week. And it was a good, I think, picture and an honest uh, tweet by uh, Congressman Emmer. Um, who has uh, a full range of his emotions and is is known to, and is very uh, just it was just a perfect tweet by by Congressman Emmer and so one of the things I do think we should do with our tweets of the week is something you guys did earlier which was we should make sure we tweet them out and uh, individually from our accounts to highlight the, the tweets of the week and and uh, great picks this week I was a little nervous Becky um, by going last that you would steal mine but. Great I got to tell you one quick, real quick story on that too. Um, freshman year, we um, roll call put out an article. There was some event, and the the freshman member, maybe more, were were sitting in the balcony um, watching something on the house floor. And Tom Emmer was right there in the middle, unmistakable. And uh, the caption said, um, "You know, something about Emmer's hostile listening face, which is our, our was we took and embraced as the inside way of saying the resting bee face, right? Is hostile listening face. So hostile listening face, I like that. Just have it. Well, thank you guys, Becky. Why don't you close us out? All right, we want to thank you for listening to the breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky, featuring Jeff Kolb and our guest, Dr. Scott Jensen. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the 
platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website, bbbreakpod.com. Again, the website is bbbreakpod.com. We are also on Twitter at bbbreakpod.com. I'm sorry, that's just bbbreakpod on Twitter. The Breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky will return next week. Have a great one. Thank you. Thank you.